Would you pray with me? Loving and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. The strength of love. Again, this is our fourth and final week of Advent. It's the week with the theme of love. It's so appropriate that we will end the, the, the topic of, of all the topics that we've talked about, hope, peace, joy. The fourth week is love. So that's really the primary theme of the entire Bible. We see it all over the Bible throughout it. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, when the Apostle John summarized the nature of God, he told his readers, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in the Gospel of John, again in John 3, 16, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And then in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus was challenged by the temple religious authorities, was asked, what is the greatest commandment of them all? Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love is clearly a central theme in the Bible, and it's important to our relationship with God. What exactly is meant by these passages about love? I mean, we know that we use this word love in, this, in our society and culture in many different ways. It can have different meanings. We might say we love a particular movie, or we love our children, or we love a friend, or we love our spouse or life partner. Or we may be speaking of self-love. In the first century, many people may know that in and around Israel, most people spoke Greek, which has a different word for love for each of these ideas. But today we use one common word, just love. As you may have heard, the specific Greek word used in the biblical passages just mentioned a moment ago that interpreted love was agape. This is the kind of love built on goodwill, benevolence, and a sincere desire to seek the best interest of another person. Although it's interpreted as love, it's different from how we may think about love in modern culture, because the agape version of love stems from a choice. One can choose to express agape love, whereas one cannot suddenly decide to have affection for someone that they don't really like. I think this is the kind of common misunderstanding that makes the commandment Jesus gave his followers to love their enemies seem so implausible. Jesus wasn't telling people that they suddenly had to force themselves to suddenly have great affection for somebody that they didn't like. He was telling them to seek the best interest of their enemies which may not be necessarily what they want in that moment. In time, intentionally looking out for the best interest of someone else 
often engenders a positive attitude or affection towards them. But it may not spark that passion that we characterize as love in our modern language for that person. Today, we often think of love as an emotion at the far end of a spectrum of desires. At one end is hate, and at the other end is love, with various degrees of like, dislike, and apathy or don't care in between. The polar ends of the spectrum, love and hate, are assumed to be a primary source of motivation for our behavior. So we might ask ourselves, how does agape fit into this model? How can agape be strong enough to guide our behavior, overcoming other likes or dislikes that might inherently be part of a particular situation or course of action that agape love is urging us to take? Perhaps, it was agape love that motivated Joseph in today's story, in our reading from the Gospel of Matthew. In the first verse of the passage, we read verse 18. It says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which gives us some context for the situation. In the first century Jewish culture, being betrothed was a very significant obligation. It implied a stronger level of commitment, really, than what may, people may think of when they talk about someone being engaged. So it's not that it's something that a couple would take lightly. If either a man or a woman of the betrothed couple had an affair with someone else, the community wouldn't think it was okay since they weren't really just married yet. It would be a tremendous violation of trust. So when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant and it wasn't his child, he would probably be devastated. On our spectrum of love and hate, this situation would probably skew towards the hate end. But Joseph's course of action following the discovery of Mary's pregnancy was not something we might characterize as hateful. Rather than making a public spectacle of her and having her ostracized by everybody else, Joseph decided to quietly separate from her. Actually, the language used in the New Testament or the New Revised Standard Version for this passage said he considered divorcing her, suggesting the gravity of the circumstances for a betrothed couple. The passage says he made this decision because he was a, quote, righteous man unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. Did he love her in the way that we might expect people in the cusp of marriage to love each other in our culture today? If so, maybe he didn't wish to see her suffer, He was, although he was experiencing personal pain himself. Or was he demonstrating an agape form of love for her? where he was looking out for her best interest while trying to maintain some level of personal self-care by avoiding a destructive relationship. The details of such nuances aren't given to us in this passage, but we do know that Joseph was convinced by an angel to take her as his wife, despite the pregnancy. Although the child didn't come from him, he was to be the child's earthly father, raising him as his own son and teaching him his trade of being of carpentry. The angel even told Joseph what to name the child, Jesus. 
And Joseph believed the messenger from God, fulfilling all that was asked of him. This is no small feat. Sometimes it's difficult to trust the message that we receive from God, especially when the consequences can be so significant. Joseph might have had second thoughts about how well he knew Mary and what to expect from her. Was this going to be the one and only time that she would become pregnant with a child that wasn't his? Through faith, Joseph resolved to trust God. The angel who gave him that message, as well as Mary, with whom he later had several more children, both sons and daughters. When we choose not to trust God, things usually don't go as well. This was the case described by the Old Testament passage we read from the prophet Isaiah a little while ago. In this passage, we read of another difficult decision, decision that had to be made by another young man, King Ahaz. Ahaz became the king of Judah at the ripe old age of 23 and was quickly confronted with a crisis that would determine the fate of himself and his people. See, the king of Aram, a different region, and the king of the northern tribes of Israel, these places were near him, were being attacked by Assyria. And they wanted the support from Ahaz, the king of Judah. They wanted it so bad, and they didn't trust Ahaz. They were willing to conquer Judah themselves and install a new king that they could trust to do their bidding. Ahaz wasn't sure what to do. So he aligned with the Assyrians. Should he align with the Assyrians, rather? He was wondering for himself. And then conquer those neighboring kingdoms. Or should he just try to repel the attacks from his neighbors on his own and avoid the obligations that he might incur from the Assyrians? The prophet Isaiah met him to give him advice and told him that God wanted him to repel the attacks by himself. But Ahaz was not convinced. But Isaiah suggested that he ask for a sign to gain confidence in this message. Ahaz refused out of fear of testing the Lord. So Isaiah gave him an idea of how long would it take to fend off the neighboring kings if he just simply tried to defend himself rather than try to enlist the help of the Assyrians. He said a young woman in Judah would bear a child and the child would be eating curds and honey by the time the challenge from the neighboring kingdoms would be resolved on their own. The entire ordeal would end in about three years if he would simply defend off the tax himself on his own. Ahaz, however, eventually chose to ignore the prophecy from Isaiah and align himself with Assyrians. In time, the kings around Judah were conquered by the Assyrians, and so was Judah. Ahaz's own kingdom. Ahaz had failed to believe the message from God, which resulted in devastation to himself and his people. And granted, it's always easier to look back in time and second-guess the decisions that people have made in the past. I mean, I'm sure there were people just as persuasive as Isaiah who were taking an opposing position, trying to convince King Ahaz to align with the Assyrians. But I'm curious how much the emotions of anger and vengeance may have played a role in King Ahaz's decision to align with the Assyrians. 
After all, these were his neighbors who came from the same tribes of Abraham as he did, who were trying to overthrow him. Did he seek their destruction out of vengeance? This is the path that Jesus taught us to avoid. Whether the people we interact with are our friends or our enemies, Jesus told us not to hate them, but to love them with an agape form of love always seeking their best interest. This same Jesus, who the Apostle Paul describes in the epistle to the Romans, his letter to the church houses in Rome, as a descendant of David and son of God, demonstrated agape love to us and the rest of the world, all the way to the cross where he was crucified. Jesus shows us what it means to never give up on love, even when everyone else does, and how to offer grace to those whom we may find it difficult to forgive. Ironically, his teaching of purposeful agape love manifests as a passion, even though it stems from a choice rather than a proclivity. As stated before, we can't choose to suddenly be passionate about something we don't care about or don't really like, but we can be passionate about God and living righteously. We can become so enraptured by the love for God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that the discomforts and dislikes of certain circumstances can be overwhelmed by the passionate desire to follow Christ. This isn't about religious fervor or becoming dogmatic about doctrine. It's about deeply and sincerely caring about the things that Jesus cared about, justice, compassion, kindness, and holiness. This is the kind of love that can change hearts and move mountains. This is a love of strength. This is the kind of love that conquers death and makes resurrection possible. In this final week of Advent, I invite you to reflect on the choice God made to love us, to love us so much that God was willing to send an only child to us, born of the Spirit filled with grace and mercy. May we all discover that same passionate love this Advent season and become a shining light in the darkness as we make our own choice to love God in return. Amen.